There's little chance the layoffs that have affected some industries will affect government. If anything, agencies are hiring. But reductions in force have occurred occasionally over the years. And if that's the case, or maybe you're just worried, what exactly are your rights and options? For a review, we turn to Tully Rinky Managing Partner, Michael Fallings. Mr. Fallings, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. We haven't seen a reduction in force. They tend to be, I think, more spot applied because of a particular small agency or mission that might be affected. But what causes reductions in force in general from your experience? Typically, it's reorganizations that result in job eliminations or shortages of funds from a particular organization that would cause a reduction in force. And have you seen that occur much in recent years? Yes, typically through the reorganizations that federal agencies will do when they're looking to combine positions, consolidate different organizations, they'll reduce their force and look to just have a particular person in a position. And what is the proper process by which they decide who gets the boot and who gets to stay? There are federal regulations that control the reduction of force procedures. There's factors that the agencies have to consider. It relies upon veterans' preference, whether a particular employee has veterans' preference, but also the employee's tenure um, of the employment, their type of appointment, their length of service, and their performance ratings are also factors that a federal agency will have to consider in a reduction of force. Right. So the agency manager making the decision then has got a lot of things to balance. Someone could have been there as a veteran for 15 years, but if they're a terrible performer, can that person go ahead of someone who's been there two years, but as a stellar performer doing similar work? Well, I mean, the agency managers aren't the only ones. They'll be working with the agency's labor relations departments as well. And in each situation depends as well as who would be potentially separated, who would be reassigned, you know, as far as whether somebody's performing better than the other. It also, you know, like I said, depends on the veteran's preference of the employee, the length of the service. Um, So each situation would depend. Well, does bargaining unit representatives, unions have a say in it? Yeah, there are employees that are represented by unions through the collective bargaining agreement that they would have a right to petition or or file grievances regarding what occurs for that employee. All right. So what is the best way for agency managers to go about the decision? There's a lot of variables. There might be a union contract in there. There could be a clause that covers reductions in force, I imagine, too, because these are long contracts. So what are some specific ways to begin the process? Because it sounds like you could get hit for a wrongful dismissal process no matter what you do. Yes. I mean, it is a difficult situation for any employee to go through a reduction of force being laid off. So managers need to understand that, but they also need to be sure they're treating everyone equally because that's a common complaints that people may have is that they're not being treated equally or fairly. And that's going with following the procedures that are set forth in the regulations, considering those factors and, and relying upon their legal representatives for the agencies and also just the labor relations department to ensure that you're implementing equal treatment across the board. And what are some of the important elements of that process as it's outlined? And this is in the statutes? Yes, and that goes back to the factors I mentioned as far as the type of appointment, the performance of the employees, how long they've worked there. Typically, like I've said, that this occurs when there's a reorganization or cost-cutting measure. So there is not just the manager that's making the decision. There's other people that are involved in determining what costs to cut. So those are factors in making sure you're applying equal treatment to the jobs you are cutting and you're consolidating are things that need to be considered when you're implementing this reduction in force. 
We're speaking with Michael Fallings. He's managing partner at the law firm Tully Rinky, which has a long experience representing federal employees in these kinds of matters. What about buyouts? Because once in a while, an agency will offer a buyout in lieu of forcing people out or people can take early retirement. When do you go to that particular option? Severance or payment of employees does occur for separating, but the employee does have to be, for federal government purposes, has to be with the federal government for at least 12 months. But, you know, that is an option that the employee could take advantage of. However, they also have to consider any reassignment or jobs that have been offered, and they can't decline particular assignments that are in their commuting area or that they're eligible for to be eligible for severance payments. But that does occur, and an employee, as long as they meet those requirements, are eligible for the payments you know that a government may offer. But is there a difference between a severance payment and a generally offered buyout program that people volunteer for? I would say it's about the same. I mean, a government agency is offering to pay money to an employee for separating, you know, and the government agencies, there's procedures to do that. I believe it's about the same as far as a government agency agreeing to pay money to an employee or a buyout, as you're calling it, for an employee to separate. Well, a buyout, I think of as something offered generally, and the first 100 people that decide they are willing to leave can get the $25,000, usually is what it is, and off they go and they can get their annuity, whereas a severance might be issued singly to selected individuals that have no choice departing. Do you think that's a fair distinction? Well, well, I don't think so, because I think people do have a choice, even with the severance option. Um, As far as the retirement aspect, people have to be eligible for retirement. And so if they are eligible for retirement, people do get a choice to going through a RIF procedure to take advantage of the retirement option and retire in that fashion. All right. So what are the employee's rights in such a case when there's a reduction in force coming because of, say, a reorg or the agency's budget was cut and Congress says you've got this many fewer billets? Well, they're still eligible to file complaints through the different offices that a federal employee may have, you know, an EEO office, office of inspector general's office. Um, If they believe that, you know, the action is not being taken fairly or taken in retaliation, of course, they're not in agreement with that. Their job is being taken um, or being reduced. So those options are still available to the employees. Um, as well as, as we mentioned, you know, contacting their union representative and filing grievances if they believe the procedures aren't being conducted fairly or, or appropriately in line with the policies. And if someone is designated to go and they get the severance or they're offered the severance and your last day is Friday, see you later, and they decide to file a grievance, do they get to stay at the agency during the course of the grievance or do they have to just be off premises? Typically, no, they do not get to stay at the agency. You would be able to file a grievance and that doesn't prolong your employment. I say typically because there may be a chance to negotiate with an agency. You know, if you file a grievance, the agency may be willing to discuss an alternative other than a severance, maybe a reassignment. But typically, if there's an effective date for their separation and that's when it will occur, then you could file a grievance within a certain period of time or even beforehand. But you would still be separated on that date. It sounds like agencies that are contemplating this requirement to have a reduction in force for whatever reason really need to think about who's the reduced way in advance of this actually happening. It seems like they would have to have a game plan that is getting them to the levels they're entitled to in terms of number of positions, but also that the decisions can be supported should they be challenged. 
Yes, and I think that takes more than days or even weeks. It takes months of decision making and planning, you know, especially when you're dealing with supervisory positions, perhaps when you're trying to consolidate supervisors and you're eliminating supervisory positions, even when you're just demoting people, you know, people going through these situations are going to be interestingly upset. And that's going to cause them to contact a legal representative or just look through different legal avenues to ways to challenge the action. So agencies do have to be prepared and have discussions through their managers, their different departments, and have a plan set forth so they can defend the action that they're taking. Is it okay for an agency management to say, look, in a year we're going to have a riff, or in six months we know we're going to have to let a certain number of people go? You may start looking now for another position somewhere else in the government. We don't know who's going to be laid off, but if you're worried, now's the time to be looking around. Is that a kind of a kosher way to ask people to, to think about it? Well, typically the notice is, I think, required. However, the notice is specific to particular people. I've seen in my experience that, okay, a RIF is going to occur. Your position will be affected, effective in about a month or, or two months or whatever the date is. These are the procedures you could take advantage of to get reemployed or be reassigned. As far as a general, hey, we're going to eliminate this office. I don't advise an agency to do that because that will obviously cause, you know, scare and nervousness and may lead to certain employees leaving, even though they may not be affected. Usually it's a specific notice of specific employees or specific office. Right. So if a particular program is going to be canceled and that involves 22 people that are working on that program, it's no longer funded. It sounds like the agency can make a cut and dry decision. The program's gone. So the people connected to it are gone. It's never quite that clean and cut and simple, is it? It's never that, <laughs> that clean and cut. But the agency can provide notice to those affected employees and you know offer them the severance or offer them a chance to apply elsewhere and give them consideration and applying elsewhere or reassigning them to a different office. All right. Anything else we need to know? Do you anticipate this happening anytime in the near future anywhere? I don't anticipate it specifically happening, but, you know, in today's day and age, you you never know. Um, I think, like we talked about, specific organizations make different changes and different reorgs, and that happens frequently. Um, I think employees should always be aware of their rights, like we talked about, that they still have rights to contact their union to file a grievance or even through an administrative grievance process or even filing through an EEO or Office Inspector General's office if they believe discrimination retaliation is at play. All right. Michael Fallings is managing partner at the law firm Tully Rinky. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.